Hello and welcome to episode 189 of Rank and Review Threequels. I am, as always, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. I will be joined this episode by my dear, dear friend, Mr. Scott Lehman. And uh, we're going to talk about, as you might suspect, third entries into franchise installments. Usually by this time, the series should know what it is, or the fans should have an idea of what they expect or want from the series. And, uh, I don't know, I think we got a couple of real hardcore horror fans and digging in deep. If you have feedback, you can send that to me at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. You can check out the website at rankandreview.ca, because I'm up in Canada. And you should go into the podcast, as always, knowing that there's going to be coarse language, and there's going to be spoilers for the movies being ranked. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. If you need something else to fill your ears with, I invite you to check out the Terror Table podcast, the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, Cobwebs, a Gothic Cinema podcast, A Lifetime of Hallmark, and Welcome to Riverdale. These are all friendly podcasts to Rank and Review. But you're not listening to them right now, because here we are with episode 189, The Requel. Um, I've got Scott Lehman back on the show, and we've had some major technical difficulties. The age of COVID continues to be an obstacle for us, but <laughs> damn it, we're going to at least get started on this threequel podcast. And um, the first attempt at this, you were gracious enough to ask me how it was, how, how it was going with me. <laughs> and I said <laughs> that I was happy to have these threequels as a distraction, <laughs> because... Yeah, I'm really getting sick of all of these technical difficulties. I've been having a lot of, you know, issues doing the interviews for the show. And um, I just miss doing stuff face to face. I miss being able to see my guests. And um, I, I'm still happy you're here. We're doing this over the phone. I can't see you. But I, I, there's just a lot of love in the room right now, Scott. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy to. And, and I agree. It'd be nice to be able to... Uh to crack a, a cold drink in, in person and talk about these films and uh, have a good time together. But uh, until then, I guess we have to deal with these issues and point through it. Remember those po- those podcasts we recorded in the mountains, brother? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, those are good. Come on. I want that like, back so bad. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, and to discuss three calls, I wore a three-piece suit just to, for the occasion. You can't see it, of course, but it's, it's there. I, I'm porky-pigging it today. Yeah. I'm only wearing a shirt, so... Uh... <laughs> Right on. Yeah, I like to. I wanted to pick this group of uh, three quals, I guess. I'm not sure if that's what you're calling them, but that's yeah. what I was calling them, anyways. But uh, uh, at the time of, I just thought it was neat. At the time of their release, these were all trilogies at that time, and since then have all gone well past trilogy <laughs> stage, for better or for worse. Um, and I just kind of think it's interesting to see where they were at the part three stage of the franchises. Yeah, well, I like it. We get a, a slice of a bunch of different franchises. <clears throat> we do all these franchise episodes where I rank them against each other, but it's kind of nice to see them square off against each other. And I like the threequel as a genre because this is definitely for horror-like enthusiasts. This is for completists. People who, you know, have seen all six of these threequels that we're going to talk about are, are going to be like the rarefied hardcore horror breed that, you know... Whether or not, like, I just did the the Leprechaun franchise. For some reason, I have watched eight Leprechaun movies now. <laughs> so, I look forward to hearing that one. Yeah, it's it's gonna be it's for like real appreciators of the genre. You know, you're you're three movies in, you're well in the mud now. You you like it so. Uh, by the third chapter, I think that the franchise should know what it is. It should have an identity, one hopes, so that we can sort of grade it. Does it fit well in its own sort of milieu, in its own franchise? And then how does it compete with the other ones we're talking about? Yeah, and usually part three, uh, they either try and wrap up the story, bring it full circle sometimes, if they're going to leave it as a trilogy, or they, how are they going to progress the story going forward? Or are they just going to keep doing a carbon copy each each sequel afterwards right and uh, some of these they've taken uh, different approaches with all of them some of them have uh, done each of those yeah um, and uh, one of the movies we're going to talk about Elm Street 3 the Dream Warriors I, I did speak about that earlier this season the very first episode of the season so the cat's out of the bag. I really love that movie so uh, going into this episode that's the one to beat but um do you have any like dark horses in the bunch? Did you have one that you were excited to revisit particularly out of this group? Um, I don't know if there's one that stood out. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I won't lie. Elm Street it was like a, a good chance to an excuse to put that back on again. Any excuse? Um, spoiler alert: that is a, a high high watermark for um, for this group, but yeah. uh, we shall see. Um, we are also uh, I'm t we're going to talk about the theatrical cut of Alien Three, not the extended producer's cut or whatever, right. which solves some of the problems of the theatrical cut. But that can be a discussion for another day. Um, and I don't know about you, but when it comes to Friday the Thirteenth Three D, I did watch it in the three D this time. So okay. the first time I reviewed the three Friday the Thirteenth Part Three, it was based on watching the the non three D version. So uh, I was a little bit maybe harder on it because there's a lot of shots very specifically designed for your three D experience. Yeah, and that's funny. This time I chose to watch it without the three D. Oh, okay. Just to, just to watch the movie on its own and not uh, just 
marvel at the popcorn flying at my face. <laughs> well, that's okay. I mean, that way we can have both sides of the argument. Um, yep. Because I've, I had some pushback when way back in the day when I did the Friday the 13th one that I was a little bit too hard on Friday the 13th Part 3. But I think that the 3D slows that movie down. Unless, of course, you're watching it in 3D. In which case, yay, 3D! <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to say by way of introduction before I listed off the movies that we're going to discuss this week and we start the reviews and the ranking? I, I No, I don't think so. Um, just looking forward to getting into it. I really appreciate you putting up with all these obstacles and, uh, and I just love having you on the show. Um, Scott Lehman and I, uh, your host and Random Canadian Larry Parsons, are going to talk about Tremors 3, Back to Perfection. We're going to talk about Alien 3. We're going to talk about Return of the Living Dead, Part 3. Um, what else are we going to talk about, Scott? Friday yeah, the Final Destination 3. Final Destination 3, Friday the yeah. 13th in 3D, and yet, of course, the Dream Warriors. Can, can, I wish I, I, it's probably some copyright issue, but I wish I could play us out with, with some docking right now. Oh, yeah, love me some docking. <laughs> docking is as fresh today as it was <laughs> the day. The day I think after we're, after we're done this, I might just go listen to the greatest hits or something. <laughs> Do they have a greatest hits? Did they manage enough for a greatest hits to CD? Oh, oh, come on, don't knock docking. <laughs> I am not here to knock docking. <laughs> In Perfection, Nevada. Go, go! There's a whole lot of shaking going on. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Can't run a business where your customers get eaten. Tremors 3, back to perfection. This time, they've mutated into the perfect killing machine. Great. Graboid? What? Are you kidding? For real? Now, only one team can stop these beasts. Michael Gross returns as Bert Gummer, obsessed survivalist. And people call me paranoid. Jack Sawyer, trusted sidekick. You do know which end the bullets come out of. I've seen movies. Jody Chang, second generation grocer. So this is really serious. I keep trying to tell you. These three warriors face the ultimate challenge. Tremors 3, back to perfection. That's why we're at the top of the food chain. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how much you and I have personally discussed Tremors, but... I have let my, my freak flag fly on the podcast that I love that first Tremors movie so very much. And I also love, 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 love Tremors. Yeah. And I think I remember many times watching that with you in Beaumont. Good, yes. <laughs> Younger versions of ourselves as well. So, yeah, it was a highly personal, like, just it hit me at the right time, the right place. And to be honest, for a long time, even though I'm weirdly loyal, like I kept on waiting for it to give me that experience again, generally speaking, I've been dismissive of the Tremors sequels. Like, I have every single one of them. So, but like, uh, there is the first Tremors and then there's the rest of them. But here's what I want to say about Back to Perfection. Once upon a time, I was super hard on this movie. 
Like once upon a time, I don't know, it just hit me on the wrong day. I wasn't into the whole ass blaster <laughs> creature aspect that they introduce in this movie. And uh, I remember when I'd first seen the direct-to-video movie, I was just once again disappointed. The second one was kind of a letdown. The third one kind of reinforced. Yeah, they're not even close to what I want them to be. I still enjoy a good cheesy monster movie, but for some reason the first time I saw it, I felt a little bit burned the way they, they went right back to the original movie and, uh, you know, copy-pasted some elements or returned elements that, that we'd seen before. It seemed, at, when I first saw it, lazy. But upon watching it this time, it felt like it was a sequel that honored the original in a lot of ways. It didn't have the budget of the original. It didn't have the personality of the original. But it's trying real hard in its lower budget direct-to-video status to do the job. But I got the vibe from the brief exchanges we had before that you were not as excited about this picture. So, uh, talk me down. It, it sounds maybe like you've watched Tremors 2 more than I have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you right. That's let's get right to the ass blasters because that's going to be a big point on how this movie sits with you, right? Because, right. Uh, as we both said, I love Tremors. And having said that, I don't really like Tremors 3. No, right. I don't hate it. I just don't really like it, you know? And uh, part of the, the main issue, I guess, is everyone loves Tremors and the giant underground worms, the, the graboids. Yep. It's a, it's a great movie monster. It, and I want to see that monster more. Yeah. Uh, part two, they evolve into uh, the Shriekers, right? Yeah. And they, they weren't bad, uh, they gave us something new. But now halfway through this part three movie, we are dealing with a new creature that literally flies by igniting its farts. Yes. And now we're resorting to a creature called ass blasters. And this is not me making fun of it. This is literally what they do. They, they fart and it ignites and it propels them through the sky. Yes. And, uh, and I just can't <laughs> help but feel tremors. You're better than this. Yeah. It, it, it sort of felt sad a bit seeing my Tremors movie become a fart joke movie. And yeah. I love fart joke movies, but... That's not, not what we wanted. Well, and there is sort of a running theme throughout the Tremors movie. There's a lot of, like, body fl fluid humor and, like, just strange kind of juvenile humor that goes throughout it. I think it's supposed to be kind of fun and, like, goofy, but, like, they kind of go to the well a lot with it. Um, they do. Yeah, the whole... You're right. The evolution of the Graboid creature, I never really wanted for the series. For me, the land shark concept was enough. These tentacles reach up, pull you under the ground, and this thing under the ground that you can't even see eats you alive. Um, like, uh, the, the evolution of the creature wasn't something I particularly wanted for the series, but because I was prepared for it this time, going in to revisit Back to Perfection, I knew we were going to be introduced to the Ass Blasters. I came in prepared for them. I was less bothered by them. And I was also less bothered by how clearly CGI they are. In a weird way, the B-movie aesthetic kind of checks that box because it reminds me of watching one of the old movies from the 60s where the creature is not convincing at all, but all of the actors are doing the best to sell it. This is just a more modern version of that now. Maybe those creatures looked really good when this came out on video in the 90s, but they haven't aged particularly well, so it really asks you to go with the movie. <laughs> okay. Well, 
if uh, I don't know because the the creatures look so much better in the first one. Of course, practical and, effects and, will and, get you there every time. I mean, this movie came out, I believe, uh, two thousand one. Oh, okay. So it's so it's hard to blame the CGI on the year because we had Jurassic Park three in two thousand one. We had Lord of the Rings, I believe, came out that year. Yeah. So this is kind of budget related. CGI work is kind of how I would look at it. Yeah. Those the shots of the ass blasters flying at no time looks anything close to believable. <laughs> and and for me, for some reason, they use CGI graboids coming out of the ground out of a CGI hole in the yeah. ground. Yeah. And that just look. I I don't know why they do that because they use they used puppets in some shots and the practical work. And it looks so much better. Yeah. And they used it in several scenes before, so why not just keep using it? No, when the the beaks of the creature are coming through the windows, or they're one on one attacking the people on top of it, and there's definitely something articulated there. It's way better. Yeah, when the grab boys become cartoon, I kind of uh, I check out a bit. Yeah. Um, one thing that still hurt my feelings a little bit, and it's strange because he's such a minute character, but. They killed Miguel. Miguel. That was one thing I wrote down. He was such a nice guy, and I did not see that coming. That's, uh, I guess, kind of balls. Because in the first one, they had some characters die that you started to kind of like a bit. Yeah. I remember watching that with my son, and when the uh, the owner of this, the, the grocery store... Walter. When, yeah. When he died, my son was like, no, I like that guy. <laughs> yeah. so, so they do that. They take someone that you kind of like and uh, give them a bit of a sad... Uh, that ending to kind of put you off well and really in the first movie miguel was a guy that we kind of expected to go like he didn't have a lot of lines he was a background character he didn't contribute much he was just sort of present in a lot of scenes but they bring everybody back that that would come except for kevin bacon and fred ward like most of the people that we met in the town from the first movie come back ariana richards speaking of jurassic park uh, returns as the older Mindy. She same actress that played Mindy in the yeah. first movie. Um, the the mother is the same. Um, the 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 woman who's running the store now is supposedly the daughter or granddaughter of Walter, who's running Chang's groceries now. Yeah. So like uh, they really were trying to reorient themselves to the first movie. And like I said, that once upon a time really rubbed me the wrong way. In this viewing of it, I, I, I felt more respect to my beloved Tremors. Like they knew they didn't have the money to do the Tremors movie that they did in 1990, but they were trying to recapture the spirit. I think three in a weird way is closer to the spirit of the original Tremors than the the second movie for sure. And well, that's, uh, uh, sorry, if I could just mention something, you kind of bring up a point that uh, was coming to my head, not to compare this movie to uh, the Dream Warriors, right? but in, in a similar way, the Dream Warriors, Freddy, or Nightmare on Elm Street 2, kind of took it a different direction. And right. Dream Warriors Part 3 brought it back home, brought it back to Elm Street and, you know, full circle. This movie did the same sort of thing. Part 2 went away to Mexico, I think. Wasn't That's it? right. The oil fields and in now, Mexico. Yeah, and so part three brings it back home. Let's go back to perfection. It's their version. Let's go back to uh, you know Nancy's house, and uh, you know, brought back the characters and some familiarity, and uh, it was kind of nice. Um, but it was a double-edged sword. But because like they didn't, they they liked all of these characters. They were all established, sort of. Like they didn't. I I felt they were all the characters were very safe. 
So, like, obviously people had to get killed and Miguel died. And I kind of felt, but Miguel, I liked him. No fair. <laughs> but the weird execution of it, too. Like, the, the Graboids attacking and three characters run in one direction and Miguel runs in the opposite direction all by himself. It was just his time in the screenplay to die. I suppose. But again, I will describe something to you. Pretend it's better executed. Pretend it's executed closer to the first movie, and, and it's kind of awesome. Bert Gummer gets swallowed by a graboid, but stays alive inside the graboid long enough for that graboid to be killed and for him to be cut out of it. <laughs> yeah, I wrote, I wrote down that moment here, actually, uh, because... I, I felt, I really felt nothing really emotional about that, or I mean, I don't know. You, you know that Bert's our hero, yep. and he gets eaten, but I, you're not really worried. The music swells for about two seconds, and but you're made aware right away that Bert doesn't die. And mm -hmm. You're never really worried for Bert because there's seven of these damn movies, and he's on the cover of each one of them. That's right. You know, <laughs> you know he's going to be okay. But uh, it does lead to a, a nice slimy scene of him getting cut out of the grappling stomach, which is... Yeah. Nice when it gets slimy, but uh, it was just, it's the kind of movie that I feel like it's just sort of on. And yeah. It, I, I don't get too invested into it, but uh, it's just sort of happening. Well, I have been soft gloves, so let me take the gloves off and start getting a little bit more negative then. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll start getting nice. Okay. <laughs> we'll, switch, we'll switch perspectives. There is a secondary plot that I feel like must have been abandoned. They ran out of shooting days. But this uh, government interest shows up. There's a van full of these guys that don't want Bert to kill the Tremors. They want to capture alive Tremors. And then they, they come to the movie. They're an obstacle for a little while. And then they disappear and they're killed by the creatures. And we see none of it. <laughs> like, none... Yeah. It, it, they were so tertiary as to be make me wonder what they were doing in the movie at all. <laughs> uh, strange, because like then they bring back Melvin from the first movie, and he becomes the secondary villain, kind of, sort of, more of a comedic villain than a direct one. But um, yeah, and then he goes away for a while too. Exactly, like. Yeah. Um, and that's where, as much as I like that they are respecting my beloved Tremors, they might start to overplay their hand. And here's Melvin again. Huh? Huh? Remember Tremors? Remember the other better movie? <laughs> yeah, they, they really did abandon that uh, the evil government agents kind of angle. Like, it feels uh, like they, they ran out of money. There was a sequence with them that didn't get shot. Like, something... They, they really needed to have more of a card to play in the movie to justify their existence. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'll say something nice. I'll say, bless these movies, bless their little heart for continuing to give Michael Gross work. Absolutely. <laughs> because he, you know, at one point he was just the dad on Family Ties, but now Michael Gross has become Burt Gummer. Yep. Uh, and uh, Burt Gummer, and it's his movie, this one, really. I mean, he does have moments of charm, and, you know, a few times his lines did make me smile. You know, I'm not gut busting or anything, but um, there's a few times where he just has those Burt moments. Uh, well, like when they're talking about, haven't you ever made a potato gun? And he says something about, well, when I was eight, I put a silencer on my BB or something. But <laughs> it's not, not quite that, but 
Well, he's a weird character for me because typically in the real world, he's not somebody that I would relate to a lot. Like typically Bert and Larry maybe wouldn't get along. I like him in the context of this series. I do think that as we move forward, Bert does become more problematic as a lead figure. In a lot of ways, he's more useful as a supporting character in my mind. But he hasn't over outworn his welcome yet in Tremors 3 for me. And they're not quite flailing and out of ideas yet. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, and, and also, the, the lady that works at the shop, I can't remember, uh, the granddaughter. Whatever, right. Um, she, I liked her. She had some good moments. I liked that she kept referring back to the Tremors comic book. Yes. When they were you know, wondering how the rules are. And she said, like, well, haven't you read the comic? It's all in the comic. And all the merchandise that they have related to Tremors. And uh, they're trying to capitalize on tourism. It was a interesting way to have uh, add that to your trilogy yeah um and there's a a weird sort of sadness like that this town was so desperate for like something good to happen to it that in a way despite the deaths these return of the creatures revitalizes the town they were going broke they were going to lose their little shitty home in the middle of the desert the monster infested desert <laughs> but now now they can continue to live in their shitty little town in the middle of a monster-infested desert. Look, uh, if you're going to watch Tremors 3 Back to the Perfection, my advice is don't overthink it. The first movie is magical to me. I really love Tremors. The rest of the movies kind of are what they are. But in that company of the are what they are, I think that Back to Perfection is one of the better Tremors sequels. That's that's how I feel today. But maybe that will change moving forward. <clears throat> Uh, I would have to revisit them to if we're going to start ranking four, five, six, seven. And, and right. They're, they're all kind of getting a little foggy, but um, I mean, I feel like there's a definite point in the franchise, and it's in this movie when the series starts to get a bit silly. Yeah. And that's when we are are fighting ass blasters for half the fucking movie, <laughs> and it sort of opens the door for future Tremors just to do whatever the, whatever yeah. the heck they want. In their hearts, I think the creators just wanted to give us more. They wanted to give us more monsters. And, like, like I, I like where their heart's at. But, um, yeah, you know. I'm there for this franchise. But it's hard to get passionate about Tremors 3. Agreed? Yeah, yeah I agree. Was there an alien on board? Yes. <sighs> We have no weapons of any kind. Start. It's here! franchise is an interesting one i i think that somehow there's always an interesting director attached to it obviously ridley scott's done three of them now but um as they passed the baton forward james cameron made this amazing action horror sequel aliens and even though this is david fincher's first movie it's like somebody must have known the talent was here Fincher went on to make amazing movies, obviously, you know, like Zodiac and The Fight Club and The Game and like 
he's yeah, a yeah. he's a big big talent and here he's handed the like the reins to this epic sci-fi franchise and the expectations are huge Sigourney Weaver is intrinsically attached to the Alien franchise. This isn't a problem yet because obviously the Ripley character is still alive. But, spoilers right out of the gate for Aliens 3, it will be a problem moving forward in the franchise. Uh, before you had sat down to watch the theatrical cut of Alien 3, I, I gave you this question to consider and I will reiterate it as my introduction. What do okay. you think is a bigger fuck you to Alien fans? The opening of Alien 3 or the ending of Alien 3? Okay. You want me to answer that? Yeah, or do you agree with that assessment, I guess? <laughs> I, I can see it. I can understand your question. Um, the, I guess I'll start with the beginning, perhaps. I can see how people are upset with that, and I guess that's because the survivors of aliens that we rooted for are now all dead hicks and bishop and newt the, yeah. and the they've, all, they've all died off screen as well yep but while the opening credits are crawling we find out that all of our beloved characters who struggled and fought through that climactic epic terrifying ordeal that was aliens have all been killed in their cryotubes that whole thing was for naught <laughs> so i can understand how you could be turned off by that. I actually don't mind that at all. Okay. Because in the end, we don't really care about those characters. This, then the filmmakers know this Alien franchise at this point is all about Ripley, and that's the main character that we need to keep going forward in this in this chapter. Hmm. And it, maybe it's better at this point to have her alone. If if they would have all crash landed and everybody's alive, they all know what's going on. If Ripley's alone, she tells a story nobody believes her. Um, it's, I think I heard some of the commentary as well as they said they wanted to start off putting the audience in the frame of mind that they're not in a safe place. Yeah. Start off with everybody you love is dead and it's only going to get worse. The um, only positive thing I can say about it, Scott, because I honestly found it infuriating, is that it took balls. <laughs> like, it, it did. that I, was I, a I gutsy opening. <laughs> I dig that when a movie's opening credits has you kind of watching with your mouth open saying, oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, I didn't mind that that much. So the bigger fuck you is not going to be at the beginning for me. Right. Um, if, if I have to pick one of those as the answer, I suppose it would be at the end with, uh, you know, I, are we allowed to say what happened? Yeah, the yeah this is a spoiler-friendly podcast. <laughs> Ripley has to sacrifice herself. Not only does she drop herself into a, a, an inferno, but an alien queen is erupting from her chest as she's doing it. Yeah, right at the exact time. Yeah. Just the shit, the theatrics. Uh, it's a little much, right? <laughs> yeah. And so this could be kind of a punch in your gut if you follow this franchise and your fan that everything she's done has just been for this, just for her to kill herself at the end. So the, I can see the anger in that. The nihilism of the movie does become problematic. Also, aesthetically, like she crash lands on a prison planet because there was an alien that snuck on board the escape pod. And um, there, it's all populated exclusively by men. They don't have weapons. They're all bald. They're all British. And they're all murderers and rapists, admittedly. 
there's nobody that we're really given that much access to, even though there's some great British character actors in there. Pete Postlewaite's in this movie, almost indistinguishable amongst all the other screaming bald British people. There's a lot of like interesting faces that don't like have two lines and then you get you get you confuse them like they all look alike. They all sound alike. And the only two characters that they give us access to is the warden, who's this one-dimensional, screaming, you know, bully tyrant leader, and Charles Dance as the sort of medical professional who also has his own sordid, dark history. And crazily, again, going right to spoilers, the first two characters that they kill... Are the doctor and the warden? So suddenly we're Pretty right, much, yeah. we're right back to Ripley and a bunch of people we don't know, like, or care about against this alien. And the more times I revisit the movie, because I've watched it a lot, I keep on waiting for it to get better. I guess, <laughs> like, the more times I watch the movie, the more I start cheering for that alien. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a problem in, in a movie. I'm not sure if you're like this, but I know a lot of people are. There's not somebody in the movie for you to root for. Yeah. Then it's it's difficult to get invested in it, and so we're look we're it's either this uh, alien that we know all about, or is it the group of murderers and rapists that we're cheering for? Yeah. And you're right that they all it's sort of hard to distinguish who is who because they do all have shaved heads and it's you know and it's dark and they're running through tunnels. It's hard to tell who is exactly who at, at times. They're all going apart. I agree with you there. The production design of the movie. I will say is amazing. Like the place looks like another world. I will buy it as a prison planet. The aesthetic of it, I guess, like I get it in the pitch, like from in the, in the room pitching it, all of these like religious bald prisoners, there's like, they don't have the adequate tools to fight this creature. Like it sounds like it would be interesting on paper, but the reality of it becomes Again, between the nihilism and the sameness of the aesthetic, it's a lot of dark brown and rust colors. And I guess the big twist is that the alien erupts from a dog, so it's slightly different in its shape and it's the way it moves. It's got a little bit more of a trot to it. It's, it's much faster than we've seen some of the aliens be in the past. But, like, it's trying so hard to be good. It's got the, this reputation that there was way too many cooks in the pre-production so many ideas were being mashed in and thrown in and and cuts were being made at the the end like david fincher would have disowned the project if he could but he didn't have the power to do that even the extended directors or or not director's cut uh, producers cut he doesn't have his name on that Um, (laughs) so you know even the director and this is his debut film clearly has issues with the movie but there is something here scott i don't want to just be full of hate and vitriol like like i said it's a gutsy move they did not play it safe aliens sort of gave us a movie where ripley had lost her family and she found a new one so what i had wanted to see was ripley moving forward with her new family and she getting the house in the suburbs and uh well, or make the fight about protecting that family or, or you yeah. know, I, I think that they were having trouble finding a, a reason for Ripley to go out and face the aliens again. So that's maybe yeah. why they decided to make it more direct. But um, I don't know. I think that the character could have evolved. We could have seen her, you know, not just be out for herself, you know. But um, 
the movie that we're presented with, I don't want to review the movie I wanted. I'm going to remove the movie that we that I have, has some great beats to it. There's yeah. a memorable scene where a guy gets pushed into a fan. Yeah, that's <laughs> he's scraping the sides of the wall. Interestingly, he's singing uh, in the year 2525. And, and at, by this point, that's a real golden oldie. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, it's just a fun little detail. And uh, it's super grisly. And it has great suspense moments. There's plenty yeah, of another, scenes like another that. Another one is the, the birth of the creature from the dog, as you kind of hinted at. Yeah. That's another kind of, it's almost reminiscent a bit of The Thing. Kind of made me think of that. That scene messed me up as a kid. Oh, the it's a... I love dogs is the thing. So... And <laughs> I, I know we're not going to talk about The Thing, but uh, yeah. it brought me back to that. But it was you know kind of an interesting idea. <laughs> Um, which also, you're right, it made the alien have to move a bit differently, which added to some of the problems later in the movie when we have to film this alien. Right. Um, but there's uh, another iconic scene, and I, I always feel like, I wanted to point out, it's probably the most famous freeze frame of the whole franchise, and that's the drooling alien face reaching out to a cornered Ripley. Right. With its mouth extending out. And I, I mean, the most famous scene is the original chest burst, but just as a freeze frame image, yeah. this is it. And when that happens on the screen, you see it and you say, oh, yeah, 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 this is that poster. That's the scene you think of. Yeah. Um, so that, that's good. There are, it's weird because there's some of the, some great moments of effects and there's some, also some of the worst in the franchise in the same movie. You're right. And I hate to be the guy that I just complained about the CGI in Tremors 3. I, I don't like that. I, it seems it always comes down to this, but the effects really take a nosedive in the third act and that's where it loses a lot loses most of its points for me yeah the more they show the creature the less convincing it becomes there's a great sequence where they're trying to herd the creature into a certain area by closing the right series of doors and we get sequence of it blurring by really quickly or we get point of view shots of it and it's quite frightening but the more we see it, the less scary it becomes, unfortunately. Yeah. And again, they have sometimes where they use it in a costume and it looks good and they have some close-up puppet shots, which look great as well. Uh, but when they just have the CGI alien chasing through the corridors, it's uh, it's one of the worst CGI big-budget movie atrocities ever, as far as I think. It, it's no longer... It, it's like you're watching Roger Rabbit all of a sudden. But... Um, Again, this is one where I watched a few of the scenes with the commentary on, and during the same scenes where maybe it's just aged badly, maybe the Blu-ray points out the flaws more or makes it more obvious, maybe right. that's the problem. But even during the commentary, they say, oh, that's a great shot there, that's a great shot, and I'm thinking, no, it's not, it's a bad shot. And then there was a really bad one where the alien's running towards the door as it closes, and they acknowledge and say, yeah, this isn't a great shot. <laughs> Uh, or like for the time, or, or within the budget they were going for, I don't know. Um, I just feel like this was not a low-budget film, though. At all. No, this was the, the pulling out all stops. I think it was more time constraints than not. Like, they spent so much on pre-production, all of a sudden they needed this product out, and uh, they might have they forced it. To say some more positive, though, uh, well, I guess I'm mixed on it, but the, that famous scene you're talking about where the creature goes nose-to-nose -nose with Ripley but doesn't kill her, She's yeah. confused by that until she realizes that it could sense she was impregnated already. And that is a high stakes realization for Ripley, you know? She's out of the game. She's got an alien queen in her chest. She knows it and we know it. And it's unequivocal. She doesn't have this any any 
beginning of a belief that even if the powers that be showed up in time, they would do anything to save her life. They would do everything to save the alien inside her, but she's dead. It's a death sentence. Yeah. And on one hand, that's amazing stakes to throw into the movie. But on the other hand, it kind of takes the shock ending away that they were going for. Yes, of course, Ripley's going to sacrifice her. Yes, of course, that's happening. Like, they're, they're trying to sell it as this big epic operatic scene. But the second Ripley has that alien inside of her, we know that this is going to happen. So the oomph is taken a little bit out of it for it. Like, we were prepared for that ending. Whereas, I, I, I don't know if she either didn't have the alien inside of her or it wasn't revealed or made obvious until that final crucial scene. <clears throat> We would have like the double hit of, oh my God, Ripley's got an alien and oh my God, we're going to lose Ripley happen like simultaneously. That yeah. could have really hit, but I don't know. I don't know. I can't decide. Like I get narratively how that adds stakes to the movie, her discovering it, but it also takes away from the impact of the tragedy to me. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, because you see it coming and she has to, she's going to die one, one way or the other. There's no... Yeah. There's no good ending to this movie. And we don't care or are asked really to care about any of the prisoners. Yeah, that's right. And even him, he had moments where he was sort of uh, a guy you could almost get on side with. But he also made it very clear that he was a, rape, a rapist and a murderer, right? So, yep. But he was seeking, re looking for redemption. Some of yeah. the other guys still, you know, would take a, make a grab for Ripley given the opportunity. And do. But um, he oh, keeps yeah, them on line. Stops him at that point, right? Yeah. Um, so it's just I, I not the sequel as an Aliens fan that I wanted at all. In a weird way, Tremors Three: Back to Perfection is closer to the sequel that I wanted to Tremors than Alien okay. Three was to the sequel I wanted to the Alien franchise. Um, the if whole. Only, if only the aliens could have like ignited their farts. You'd be uh, well, you know, I'm not looking for a <laughs> fart flying alien necessarily, but. I like strong Ripley and like the fights out of Ripley halfway through this movie. And it's, it's such a miserable, like ugly movie. They, I mean, the other movies were dark, but they weren't necessarily miserable. They were exciting and thrilling and scary. This was like a, it was harsh in a way, you know, it, it didn't leave me feeling pleasant. The first time I saw it, I actually felt kind of gross after I watched the movie like, I, I have enough, there's enough good in it that, like, I revisit the movie and I can sort of appreciate aspects of it. But the first time I saw Alien 3, I was kind of mad at it. Like, it, yeah. it hurt my feelings because I loved those first two movies so much. Oh, for sure. And as a part, as a part three... I, I assume at that point they were trying to wrap it up. It appears that they were thinking this is going to be a closed trilogy, yeah. the Ripley story, and and no better way to just close it off as killing your hero at the end. <coughs> you know, I can see that's. I'm not sure if that was the intent at that point, just to leave it at three chapters. And uh, I think it was at the time, but you know, Sigourney Weaver either changed her mind or her star was starting to to, to sink a little bit. And uh, she decided to go back to it. But then, because she was contractually connected to the Alien franchise, they had to deal with the fact that Ripley was dead, but they weren't allowed to make another Aliens movie unless Sigourney Weaver was in it. So how do we get around that? 
Yeah, you paint it into a bit of a corner than it. Yeah, so Alien 3 causes a lot more problems than it solves for me as an Aliens fan. But man, do I have a lot of respect for David Fincher. And man, do I have a lot of respect for a lot of the actors and the production design in the movie. There's a lot good in this not very good movie. Is I guess. I agree. I kind of agree with that. And as a trilogy, it's definitely the third best. Yes, agreed. (laughs) Good enough? Sure. They vowed to stay together forever, that their love would never die. But their pledge remain untested. Oh, cool. No problem when the boss's son, remember? Until they went looking for a thrill and stumbled on the chilling fact. Let's proceed. That even the dead can go on living. They came back to life. We gotta get out of here. And tonight, fate will put their promises to the test. Now that she's dead, he's frightened to live without her. But bringing her back is terrifying. (gasps) Oh, God, Kurt, that was incredible. Let's do it again. It's funny, earlier when we were talking about Tremors, I opened by saying, I love Tremors so much, I heart Tremors so much, I have such a passion for that movie. Well, we're going to talk about Return of the Living Dead Part 3, and uh, for starters, I have to say, that original Return of the Living Dead is, again, another piece of sacred 80s text to me. I fucking love that movie. It is so punk. It is so ridiculous and over the top. It's gnarly in its violence. It's funny, but it still kind of works as a horror movie to me, even though it's so funny. There's just so much to love there. Can I just quote Step Brothers right now? Yes. Did we just did we just become best friends? Oh, we've been best friends since birth, <laughs> brother. <laughs> the first Return of the of the Living Dead is one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah, like, like period, end of sentence, right? <laughs> like, uh, so funny, funny story. I rewatched that uh, last October, and uh, I made my wife watch. Oh, really? No, Sarah, she's not interested in, in these kind of films, but I, I said, hey, this is one of my favorites. Come watch it. It's a, it's a fun time. It's a good, fun movie. Right. And she watched it, and I was sitting with a dumb grin the whole time, and there was at one point she looked at me and just said, I'm sorry, but seriously, this is your favorite movie? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, isn't it awesome? And she was, okay. Look, I, I love Sarah. Don't take this the wrong way, but there are some ways that Sarah and I are just very, very different people. <laughs> okay. yeah. Theoretically, we come from different areas, but uh, yeah, that, that movie is sacred to me. Yeah, so it, it's an uphill battle if you're going to be making a sequel to something that sacred. And like uh, the second movie had just tried to do the exact same thing. Uh, the, the effects were really good, but everything else was pretty meh, if you ask me. And then we get Brian Usna attached to this. Brian Usna has done a lot of crazy, crazy horror movies and uh, uh, usually really, really indulges in excesses. He's of the Stuart Gordon school. He's worked with Stuart Gordon a lot. And uh, anytime you're watching a Usna film, much like a Stuart Gordon film, you can count on the fact that you're going to see something... that goes over the line that you haven't seen before that's going to shock you at least and if if not put a smile on your face it will stick with you you'll remember this good or bad it, using a picture will stick with you um 
they seem to be more interested in sort of staking their own territory. They don't want to go back to the original and revisit, uh, you know, well, there were no characters to revisit. Everybody dies in the original Return of the Living Dead. But, like, they weren't necessarily uh, slavishly, you know, worshipping the original the way the sequel was. This one wants to be its own thing. It and, was, yeah. And I kind of appreciate that. It's actually kind of as much a love story, as a tragic love story, as it is anything else. It's character-focused in a way few zombies seem to remember how to be, especially in this time frame. So um, it's actually kind of got, uh, around all of the insanity and around all of the gushy violence, a heart to it. And that kind of gives it a personality, and that makes it memorable. It's sloppy and it's slapdash in places, but I have a real affection for it. <laughs> I kind of like it too. And uh, because it's part three, it's not following the original. It's following part two, which wasn't as celebrated. Right. So it's, it doesn't have that uphill thing. It has to live up to part two. You know, the way Aliens, Alien 3 had to follow a really good Aliens movie. Um, this has to follow a, a mediocre movie. So... Uh, it's probably way more fun uh, than I. It should be. I don't know. But you're right. It's a sequel, kind of only in name only, uh, kind of attitude. The main thing is the canisters, I guess. Yeah, trioxin. Yeah, trioxin yeah. is the sort of connective tissue. Our main character, and I don't have my cheat sheet in front of me for this movie. I apologize, but his father is uh, works at the military installation, and they have trioxin, and they're studying yeah. it. They're reanimating people and trying to figure out ways to if. <laughs> Once they have them reanimated, they can figure that part out, but they can't figure out how to turn them off once they've reanimated them. Um, I, just, I did write something down here, kind of just how quick the movie moves. Oh, yeah. At a quick pace. I wrote this down. I'm not sure how legible this will be because I wrote it in the dark while the movie was on. <laughs> but it's 20 minutes of the movie. It's that we're at a military research facility. They're testing this gas. It reanimates the dead. A corpse is resurrected into a zombie, kills someone at the research facility, he gets shot in the head. Then the bitten doctor is reanimated into a zombie. He bites and kills someone else. Now we got three dead bodies. Yep. This is all watched by the son of one of the head military guys and his girlfriend, who's turned on by this. So they go home to have sex. She can't stop talking about death and what it feels like. Then the kid's dad comes home, tells him they're being transferred to another city next week. He says no one rebels. Him and his girlfriend jump on a motorbike to run away. The, uh, what the... They get in an accident, and uh, she flies off the bike, and her head hits a pole. It breaks her neck, and she dies. The guy cries for about eight seconds. Then he remembers he still has his dad's security access card for the base, where they just saw them bring the dead back to life. Yep. You know darn well that's where they're going. And as soon as she flew off the bike into the pole, this is 20 minutes in, and this has all happened. It's like, this movie just moves. That's a lot of... Uh, <laughs> And it continues to move and like they keep on picking up extraneous characters as they go along. (laughs) One of the things that kind of broke my heart in this viewing is that poor homeless guy that gets wrapped up in the adventure with him. (laughs) He he gets just put through... Oh my god, he gets put through so much and all he does is try to help these people who stumble onto him like he just chose the wrong pipe to stay in like he's <laughs> just looking for a place to sleep at night and he ends up killed and then reanimated and then blown apart a piece at a time screaming in pain and utter torment 
and yet this is sort of a weird romantic comedy <laughs> splatterfest. Yeah, it's weird when when the the girlfriend zombie kills and eats Riverman. Yeah. Still with this viewing, I still gasp and say, "No, not him. He's he's just trying to save her. <laughs> he's, he says, here, take her to safety, and then it just she turns no. on him. For a crazy zombie movie, this is a surprisingly almost heartbreaking moment. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I can say a little bit wonky about it, um, it it's a low budget movie and uh, it was wall to wall effects like a lot of Usna's films and one of the things that he does to handle the amount of special effects is instead of using one company he'll hire two or three different companies to, to handle different sequences um, that keeps the budget down but it makes them a little bit inconsistent some of the prosthetic effects are amazing some of them are less amazing some of them look kind of weirdly real and graphic and some of them seem affected and cartoonish and i think that lack of uniformity of vision because it was three different effects houses kind of made it a little bit unstable but it also added to the weird energy of the movie that you really didn't know what kind of boogeyman was going to pop out at any yeah. given scene yeah, I think so too. I, I enjoy the effects in this one. Um, and sometimes I felt surprised with the level of the gore and effects because it feels like they're better than you expect they're going to be when the movie starts. Yeah. Because it has, when it starts, it has a, a bit of a cheaper feel. Uh, and when you get that first bit of, uh, of eating people <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the things that come out of those canisters, you're like, okay. We're going to go with this, all right. Well, and Yuzna does this a lot. Again, same thing with Stuart Gordon. Like, they make super low-budget movies, but as a result, they can they have a lot more personal freedom and latitude in what they'll show you. And because it seems so cheap and slapdash, you all of a sudden become broadsided by these crazy effects that you get hit with. It just seems like that effect shot came out of a different movie somehow, <laughs> you know? Yeah, when one that stood out was uh, when the... The girlfriend zombie comes out uh, holding a severed head. Yes. The neat effect with that is the head is not cut clean off. It's still attached to, to the spine. Yep. And the body is dragging the body behind it. And you don't see that all the time. No. And again, like extravagant over the top. This isn't just a quick blood effect. That, that guy has a lot of screen time before and after his death. <laughs> Um, I want to talk about that main character. I don't have the name of the actress in front of me, but uh, she's an interesting character. She's got this sort of gothy 90s vibe, obviously, because of when the movie was made. But uh, as much as they were going for this like Shakespearean-level romance, I, I wonder if like it was also a comment on the Romeo and Juliet love. You, you know, like when you're a teenager, you're just so passionate about everything. You're so in love. If you love yeah. something, you love it so fucking much. And if you hate something, you hate it with every fiber of your being, right? So he's committed. Once he brings her back to life, like that's his zombie. Like <laughs> that, that she's forever. They're attached somehow forever. And, uh, she had some issues before she became an undead zombie, but once she becomes a zombie, uh, a lot of her ticks and hums become exacerbated. And she starts at first cutting herself because I think she wants it, it makes her feel something and that brings her back to being human. But as it progresses, she cuts herself because I think it feels really good. Like there's this. Yeah, she, she says, she says the pain helps the hunger go away. Yeah. 
But so, as long as she hurts herself, she won't eat her boyfriend. That's right. But she also seems to be getting off on it a little bit in some of the scenes too. And this actress has to work for the last third of the movie in a full body prosthetic piece. So she's not as exposed as she looks. It looks like she's got her boobs hanging out, but those are actually makeup effect boobs. Like yeah. she's wearing a whole piece over. But she also still has to do this character with like this arc. And as crazy as she's getting, the one thing that seems to stabilize her is that she does have love for our main character. And there's a real performance happening here. Like, uh, a lot of the times, you know, they just want some young, willing actress who's willing to put up with the makeup effects and willing to, you know, show her boobs. And in this case, they cast an actress to really help that character work. Because as much as the effects were good, if we didn't connect with those characters, the movie wasn't going to hold together. At the end of the original Return of the Living Dead, spoilers for an adjacent movie, a bomb drops and all of our characters kind of get wiped off the screen. And like, it sucks, but it feels like an appropriate ending to the movie. In this movie, our lovers, you know, willingly put themselves in a furnace and burn together. And, you know, as much as it could possibly be in this ridiculous wall-to-wall spatterfest, it's sort of sweet. <laughs> Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Well, you are, you are crazy, but not for this reason. Not for that reason. Okay. No, no um, because you're right. After everybody's saved in our final scene, what we think is the final scene in the sewers, yep. you notice that there's still about 15 minutes left in the movie. And that's when it turns a little bit, and we actually start developing some sympathy for the zombies. Yep. Because they're being tested on and tortured, really, in a sense. As, and they're preparing to use them as a military weapon. And and, uh, and it kind of, for me, it works. Uh, usually I don't like when we get our villains to be sympathetic, but this, this worked, I found. Because the zombies are an interesting villain, because are they necessarily evil? No, their existence is pain to them, we find yeah. out. Like, like being a lot reanimated makes them, like, insane with pain. And the only thing that makes the pain go away is consumption. That's right. And, and they're, you know, they didn't ask for this. They're just really a victim of the circumstances. Yeah. Um, and that first that first movie, Return of, of the Living Dead, that uh, half-corpse that's strapped to the table, she hints yeah. at that, right? That's oh, right. it hurts. It hurts. And they need to eat brains to make the pain go away. So it does connect the, connect itself to that. So It's playing by the same rules, but it's still its own kind of movie. And it's not reliant on the first Return of the Living Dead. If you hadn't seen any other Return of the Living Dead and you watched three by itself for some reason... <laughs> That you'd be weird for doing it, but I don't think you'd be lost. No, not at all. No, yeah. I think uh, so. As a part three, how does it stand up with the series? It's sort of I feel like a different story in the same universe. Yeah. So I will take it over part two. And as far as I'm concerned, the there are no more Return of the Living Dead. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I love zombie movies, as you know. Yep. And I like my I like my zombie movies to be preferably a little bit over the top. Yep. And this one this one is it's not perfect, but if you like this type of movie, it's an entertaining one. So I I say check it out. 
Agreed. And thank you for reviewing it for me. Uh, I did review this one once before years ago with Mr. Lee Beckman, but I was running oh, yeah, a yeah. I was running a fever that episode, and I really oh. didn't feel like I was on my game. We recorded two episodes back to back, and particularly that second one, I just want to do over on. So, ah. <clears throat> Return of the Living Dead Part Three. Check it out, kids. Friday the Thirteenth Part Three in three D. Now, when it comes to killing in Jason's woods, Jason will come to you. Friday, the 13th, part three, in 3D. A new dimension in terror. It will scare you. Count on it. All right, we're back. We took we took an extended intermission, but we're going to talk about Friday the 13th, Part 3, in 3D. And the interesting thing about this particular review is I will be reviewing the 3D experience because I watched it in 3D, and Scott's going to be reviewing the standard experience. So we both have a, a, a different, a very different take, perhaps, on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we've both seen the film in both of its forms you know countless times too, several so times i will yeah. say several times well uh years ago beckman and i did a friday the 13th retrospective and people thought i was a little bit hard on friday the 13th part three here's the thing i'm affectionate about the whole series even when i'm hard on a friday the 13th movie on some level i still enjoyed watching it but in in my defense of my being hard on friday the 13th part three the first about five minutes of part three is the last five minutes of part two. Pretty like cut and paste, like very lazily. And then we have an almost 10 minute opening kill sequence. And then we have the 20 minutes to get our characters. And like the movie actually really, even by Friday the 13th standards, has some some pretty serious pacing issues for me. Now, once it gets going, it becomes a full-blooded Friday the 13th movie. It was before the MPAA was getting super-duper intrusive, and there's plenty of memorable stuff that we can and will talk about. The most famous thing uh, from the 3D perspective about this movie is, of course, the famous head crush, eyeball-popping kill. Um, and, you know, applause, applause. But I, controversially, I always think that that's the kill that gets talked about in this movie. But the one that doesn't get enough credit is Mr. I'm Walking on My Hands kill. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the, three, the 3D effect is pleasing while you're doing it. But the special effect of the eyeball popping, even as a kid, even when I was young, it just didn't look good. It never really looked good. I think that's a kill that we always liked the idea of more than we liked the reality of. Um, so yeah, I guess I love the franchise Friday the 13th. It's uncomfortable. I'm not really saying mean things about it. I just have a controversial take on it. Some people really love Shelley. 
I'm not a big Shelly fan. I think the best thing <laughs> Shelly contributes to the Friday the 13th franchise is, of course, giving Jason his hockey mask. Um, there's other things we can get into, but generally speaking, I, I prefer this in the 3D. All of the 3D gags, the stuff that's built for the 3D where people are clearly sticking a pole in your face, uh, works. Whereas when you're watching it in the standard definition version, that makes a slow movie slower. So this has never been one of my favorite Friday the 13th, but watching it in 3D, it's way more fun. I get way more into it and the effects are actually working for me. So the pacing issues are less there. So I like Friday the 13th 3 much more in 3D. Where do you stand? Uh, well, you touched on a lot of uh, a lot of thoughts here and I'm going to agree with, with a lot of them. Uh, this, is, this has always kind of been one of my favorite Friday the 13th. Oh, wow. And maybe that... That might come from, it was probably, I think, the first Friday the 13th that I saw. Okay. So it kind of, it's going to hit me in that spot as well. Uh, we saw this, I, I was very young. This was in a small hotel room on a family trip to Radium Hot Springs, I believe. And we just came back to the hotel, and they had Super Channel, and this was on. And so I, I watched it, and it changed my, my world. So, <laughs> <laughs> so for that reason, it's got kind of got a special place, because at that age, of course, I was probably 10 years old, I found Jason scary. So right. this was maybe the only time I found Jason to be scary. So maybe it was because, again, I was 10. Or, but uh, this was also, and I've watched it many times, 3D, 2D, whichever. But this was probably the first time I've watched it with a critical eye, seeing where this is going to rank amongst other films. Other times it's watched purely for enjoyment, and it works that way. Yeah. When I watched it this time, I see what you meant as far as uh, I didn't remember the movie feeling so slow to really get going. And uh, I really kind of noticed it this time. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's something that, uh, you know, it takes, like I said, about 20 minutes uh, before we meet this next group of kids and uh, find out who they all are. Um, I don't mind. You pointed out Shelley. You didn't really, not really fond of Shelley. I'm kind of wondering, was he, he must have been somebody's brother or something that they had to bring on that trip because he didn't seem, this was an odd group of kids that yeah, went I think out together because he didn't fit in with anybody. He's uh, the roommate the of one of the guys. He just sort of is the tag along character. And I yeah. think we're meant to empathize with him, but they use him for like way too many false scares. And. Although I can relate to being the awkward outsider, he just doesn't read as genuine to me. I, I like, again, much like the eyeball kill, I like what they're going for with Shelley. I just don't think it's 100% successful to me. Yeah, the eyeball kill, you touched on that. I mean, it is, it is it's really fake right now to watch that especially. Um, you can see the wire that, uh, it's obviously a fake head. You can see the wire that's attached to the eye that it pulls it right out to the camera. It's in a split second, it looks all right. But uh, after you study it this many times, you can see the wire. You think that it's been re-released on Blu-ray. They could have maybe erased the wire by now, but I kind of love that they did it. Yeah. I think it's kind of awesome that <laughs> you can still see the wire. Uh, it keeps it real. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, changing the Star Wars movies to improve the, the graphics. And no. Like, oh, let's, just, let's leave these flaws in there. That, no, that these are, of course, sacred texts, which should not be fucked with ever. But, like... Even not just the wire, though. There's a, something a little bit paper mache about the fake head. Like, there's nothing credible yeah. about it for me. <laughs> Aside from uh, Shelley, there was always the hippies. Yes. I always wondered why. Why are they there? 
in this group. They seem way older than the rest of them, and they don't seem like people that would hang out with the other four that are there. So, well, in my if I was writing the novelization of this, if I was lucky enough to do that, their backstory is they're all college kids, but those guys were smoking so much dope that they'd still been in college for like <laughs> fifteen years or whatever. And I love that their names, what they like, Chuck and Cherry or, or yeah. Chuck and Sherry. And, you know, and obviously they're, they're Cheech and Chong. So, Neither uh, of them try to, you know, reach the character outside of the cloud of smoke. But the script doesn't ask them to. I actually wasn't bothered by it. The interesting thing about the pot characters in this day and age is like, these are easy, safe kills. We're meant not to like feel anything for these guys. Like when they die, oh, no great loss. Increasingly in horror movies and slasher movies later, the pothead is becoming more of a heroic survivor character. It's strange. Yeah, see uh, Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. Cetera, right? Yeah. Um, I guess one of, the, one of the other flaws about this movie, if you're going to look at it that way, is if, if continuity is going to be a big issue with Friday yes. the 13th, that area between part two and part three is maybe the foggiest out of all of them. Because part three appears to take place the next day after part two. Yes. It starts watching a newscast of the massacre at, uh, at the campground of part two, and including Ginny, the lone survivor. We never really find out what happens at the end of part two, what happens to uh, her boyfriend. No, nope, he just but vanishes. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some foggy moments. And then now uh, Jason is bald, and uh, he looks quite a bit different than he did when he jumped through the window at the end of part two. Um, maybe he took some time to go and shave his head. I, I don't know if that's something he would do. <laughs> but plus, our, our main girl, Chris, has some past history yes. with, with Jason. And she tells a story about a time when she was attacked in the woods by someone who turns out was bald Jason. So my question is, when was this? It puts the gun, was this during, you know, between part one and part two, when Jason was still... Um, I think she said it was like sense. three years ago. I think she might have even mentioned it specifically. Uh, my bigger problem with that is that, like, by implication, she was raped by Jason Voorhees, right? Well, they don't really, I don't know, I guess you could wonder that, but uh, she just says she blacked out and she woke up at home in her own bed. Mm. So uh, she blacked out and nobody knows what happened, so... But Jason typically kills people and she was so traumatized that she blocked out the memory. If he didn't kill her, what did he do to her? It just, to me, that's just not a beat that I'd ever apply to my version of Jason Voorhees. I don't think that yeah. that sex really plays into it. He doesn't like sex. Like, he punishes sex and drugs. He's like a Republican mascot, as I've said before, you know? So for me, I, I like the Friday the 13th series. I want it to make sense to myself in my head, so I make up my own story yeah. to, to make sure. <laughs> so what I tell myself is her incident took place sometime before, before Part 2, um, and even before he had the sack on his head, perhaps. So uh, maybe she kicked and kicked and eventually got away. That's what I tell myself, and she just ran and blacked out. So right. the last thing that they show us in her flashback is she's kicking while he's dragging her. In my mind, I say she got away and doesn't remember what happened. Okay. So that's just what I tell myself. Yes, I exactly. Want, I, don't want to, I don't want Jason like you to have any sexual angle. Yeah. And... Uh, so that's the story. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because uh, some of the uh, the extras on here, the commentary track during that scene, uh, they were asking her, the actress that played that character, what the uh, 
the motivation was, what the backstory was, what really happened. And she says she asked the director that many times, and she said, so what actually happened to her? And he basically said, laughed and says, I don't know. I guess we'll just figure it out. We'll find <laughs> so there was not a lot of uh, a lot of thought towards that. Look, anyway. all this 3D shit is giving me a real headache. It's such a pain in the ass to shoot. Do not be bothering me with little plot issues right now, okay? Yeah, I mean, the, the movie really basically was centered around the 3D. Yeah. If you hear anyone talk about it, it's like it took so long to set up every shot wondering, okay, how can we use 3D in this shot? Now, how can we use 3D in this shot? So the story was definitely second after the 3d but i mean like as a gimmick it does work when you do the 3d and like i think this is where 3d can work well generally speaking i find it's a distraction from the movie very rarely has 3d enhanced the experience for me it's just sort of a fun kind of like every now and then sort of thing to me i, I i'm not like embracing it full-heartedly but this is the type of movie that it's really good for. And we talked about like My Bloody Valentine 3D with these eye-popping kills, literally, um, you know, exploit it that way. And they do, as you said, spend a lot of time giving us different reasons for, with the juggling and the popcorn. But again, yeah. that only helps you in the 3D version. In the TV version, they're just shots of popcorn and juggling, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, two things when, that, when you're not watching it in 3D, you're right. You're watching it and you're saying, why Why is this guy pointing the pole at yeah. the camera? And why are they dwelling on this? And moving everything towards the camera. So, and just slowing uh, everything down. I had two things that I wanted to ask you about. Because after all these years and all of these uh, viewings, I'm still unsure about it. There's a scene before the first couple is killed where a guy goes into the barn and all of the rabbits have been killed. And then there's okay. a jump scare with a snake. I have always been confused. The snake killed those rabbits? Or did Jason inexplicably murder those rabbits? I don't know. I think, uh, I guess I've always figured that Jason's got to eat. I don't know if he <laughs> just went in there and grabbed some rabbits. I've never really thought about that. but uh... Yeah, again, uh, going into my head, there's, there's another episode in Friday the 13th where a dog jumps or is thrown out of a window. We're not sure. Like... We know Michael Myers will kill animals, but Jason hasn't been a lot of an animal killer, right? Uh, yeah. The other yeah, thing I I'd, I'd, uh, Michael Myers, sorry, go ahead. No, the other thing that I wanted to bring up, because speaking of things that must traumatize and block out, I'm for some reason always surprised by, I warned thee. I warned thee. <laughs> this crazy old guy holding an eyeball again to the camera for the 3D effect and sort of taking the role of um, Crazy Ralph. Of Crazy Ralph, thank you, from yeah. your first movie. But, like, right out of nowhere that guy comes and then right back into nowhere does he descend. <laughs> Very strange. Yeah, he's definitely part three's version of Crazy Ralph, I figure. And uh, I, I wonder where he found that eyeball because he does say there were other body parts <laughs> so, I'm assuming that he stumbled upon, you know, probably the remains of someone from part two. Maybe. Uh, maybe and uh, said, hey, look, an eyeball, me. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to take this with me and go lay down in the street and uh, be ready for the sequel. I don't, I don't know. It was strange. Uh, horror nerd fun fact. One of the early masks we see Shelly in uh, is from Alice, Sweet Alice. It's like oh, a, okay. a 70s slasher movie that I've only recently caught up with. But when yeah. I rewatched it this one, I was like, oh yeah, that's definitely that same mask. So I guess there was a nice little shout out there. 
Um, we haven't talked a lot about the kills. Jason kills a pregnant woman in this movie. That's kind of taboo. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I wanted to mention that because it's it's weird because they mention it that she's pregnant near the beginning, almost in passing. Yep. But it doesn't really lend itself to the story or the character really. Um, she's also. I don't know. I guess it's not to add some weight when Jason kills her and her unborn child. I'm not sure. Or because we they mentioned that we automatically are supposed to assume she's safe. I don't know. Uh, I had a theory when we did the sort of full series retrospective that they kept on trying to up themselves. You know, they'll kill a guy in a wheelchair. They'll kill a mom. They'll kill like, and in this yeah. movie, they killed a pregnant lady. Yeah. I think what the first, I guess when I first watched it the first few times, the fact that she was pregnant almost passed me by. Right. They, they mentioned it in the van on the drive-in, but never again after that, really. So... Um, I guess after I think, oh yeah, that's right, she was pregnant too. Oh, that's, that's a bummer. Her death is great though. Yep. I do like her, her death in the hammock with the uh, machete through the sternum. But Stabbing but, right through the chest, sort of going again back to the classic Kevin Bacon style Kevin of kill. Bacon. Yeah. You, you pointed out a horror nerd moment. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to point out a horror nerd moment. Do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the motorcycle gang that they stumble upon of course they stumble upon this motorcycle gang basically because jason hasn't killed anybody in a while and we need some more people to kill that's right uh, that's really the only reason but uh, to me the thing i want to point out is this gang looks like they would be friends with uh with the with the gang in return of the living dead absolutely which was also uh one of the guys in return of the living dead the uh punk guy named spider was actually also in Friday's 13th Part 5. Yes, that's, that's a weird... Was killed in the outhouse. And the coincidence here is uh, Ali, the gang leader of this gang, has a spider on the back of his jacket. So to me, it's all... Oh, super nerdy. They're, they're all intertwined. <laughs> that actor you were talking about who played Spider in Return of the Living Dead, I just bumped into him in one of the Leprechaun movies. He's come up recently. Weird, weird. <laughs> I, I wish there was an outhouse duet that we could talk about in this movie because that's a, a great moment. But <laughs> um, we're getting long landed, but I wanted to talk about the ending again because they're mirroring the original movie so much, even with the kills and everything like that. They wanted to do this big jump scare ending, and this is a real another big bone of contention why three is less sacred ground to me than some of the, the other Friday the Thirteenth. You know. Uh, First of all, our final girl is the final girl for like the last 15 or 20 minutes of the movie. It's funny how much movie there is left when she's the only girl in the movie. Um, oh, yeah. And secondly, once again, she ends up in a boat on the water. This sounds familiar. And waking up and sort of uh, delirious. And she sees Jason in the window of the house and he's coming to get her and she's doing a really bad job of paddling away with any speed. And then Jason's now got her head back mom jumps out of the lake and grabs her and pulls her into the water yeah yeah the very ending that part does not make any sense you're right no uh i mean then she again wakes up and they they drive her presumably to the loony bin but i don't know like it felt it felt like a desperate like again they're, they're just trying a little too hard there for my for my taste yeah, the, the part, because she doesn't know about Jason and his mother, so if she's dreaming that part of it, why would she know about his mother in the lake? But uh, but before that point, I 
as her as a final girl, she she does kick serious ass. She, like, she hands out damage to Jason. Oh, absolutely. She puts an axe in his head. It's one of the better uh, final girl sequences, I think, in a Friday movie. She stabs Jason in the hand, sticks a knife in his knee, yeah. crashes him over the head with a log, cranks him unconscious with a shovel. She yeah. hangs him and then finally plants an axe in his head, uh, right in his face, breaks the mask. So that part I, I dig. I think that's great. Uh, the ending where she wakes, which has that little dream sequence in the boat, yeah, that's always stood out as actually one of my favorite moments. Oh, really? When she sees when she sees Jason in the house, kind of clawing at the window with that crazy grin on and blood all over his face. Yeah, I absolutely I love that image because that's that's the image that brings me back to being a little bit afraid as a ten year old, seeing something that I should not be watching. Right, I can believe but, uh, that for sure. And, and then the way he bursts out the door, I, I just, I love that scene, and then she realizes it's a dream, and, uh, you know, and then it goes from there. But uh, the part where she's seeing Jason in the house, um, she's losing her mind, I do enjoy that quite a bit. So, again, I think you know what you're getting with a Friday the 13th movie. These movies are review-proof. As much as I've pointed out a bunch of shitty things about the movie, I have affection for it, you know. It's an is-what-it-is property, especially in its 3D format. Is there anything else you wanted to say? Um, I'm not sure. There's a bit. I mean, it's, you know, if we're just pointing out kills we like and whatever. I mean, there's the spear gun in the eye. Yeah, of course. Jason's first, Jason's first kill with the hockey mask. And it's uh, kind of nice when he just kind of walks out the first time with that on. And you see him. It is an iconic moment. Um, Another question, I don't don't want to point out all the flaws, but one thing I want to ask you is, uh, after everybody's dead, the, the last remaining survivor finds the bathtub running full of bloody clothes in the in the tub and I, i'm not sure if you know why jason's doing laundry <laughs> i don't know i don't know another inexplicable thing why did he kill the rabbits yeah i don't know but i guess he just likes to keep clean i don't know that, that was maybe the weirdest thing more than the ending to me is like, why why is he washing all the clothes <laughs> And maybe that's answering the question: what uh, what what Jason does in his dormant period? He just runs around doing laundry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, another little uh, special uh, nerd moment. Um, I can't remember his name now, but the the boyfriend of the the final girl who she, she's off. Uh, yeah. Telling her story to. Um, he's wearing a sweater in that scene <laughs> that is oddly reminiscent of uh, Jason's mother in Part One. Watch again, and you're wondering why is he wearing Jason Mom's sweater? But, uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I guess that sure. will have to be for my next viewing because yeah. I'll watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> but as, as far as we wrap up on this movie, as in regards to kind of what I'm doing with the others, how is it as a third movie uh, finishing the trilogy at the time? I think at that point, if this was to be a three movie series, I think it does very well in that respect uh, as a one, two, three. It brings it full circle. You know, he gets this new mask. Um, in the end, it looks like he's basically killed. Essentially, they could have ended it there. Yeah. Uh, but they also didn't cut off his head to leave it open if they want to make some more money because this made a ton of money. So. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, and yeah. best disco theme Friday the 13th ever. <laughs> the, the main title is super, super disco, isn't it, for Friday oh, the yeah. 13th? <laughs> The 
once we got off that roller coaster, we're still going to die. Unless we can figure out how to stop it. I never thought I could see my own death before it happened. Here's some personal story time. <laughs> a little backstory um, to make the opening sequence of this kind of personal. Once upon a time, my sister worked at a restaurant called Pacific Fish in West Edmonton Mall. And I was quite young and we were going there to either pick her up or actually have supper there. But there was this weird lineup of people. Like the mall was unusually busy even for West Edmonton Mall. The roller coaster was reopening. Oh, yeah. Because there'd been a terrible accident with that roller coaster. Several people had been killed in this big indoor roller coaster in the mall. And all of these people could not wait to be the first to ride <laughs> the roller coaster since it was reopening, apparently. Um, and that's kind of a weird, fascinating sort of bit of human nature. Um that they don't play with at all in this Final Destination movie, but it does center around, like, the instigating accident is uh, on a roller coaster in this picture. And it's a, it's in a, like, I've, I don't enjoy roller coasters. I can usually convince myself to get on them, but I, whether or not I have a good time is, like, 50-50. It's just not my thing. And the uh, older I get, I think the less I enjoy being throttled about so much. <laughs> I love roller coasters. Oh, sweet. So, but uh, it does hit a little bit of a personal nerve. Um, I don't uh, I don't drive as much. I think the highway accident in the beginning of the Final Destination 2 is spectacular, don't get me wrong. But it doesn't hit me in the same sort of personal way. Um, okay. So Mary Elizabeth Winstead, uh, her first starring role in this, um, she and her friends go on a roller coaster and she has a premonition of their doom she pulls a bunch of people off the roller coaster except one who uh doesn't go on which is actually a nice little beat for her because she knows before anyone else that she's saying goodbye to him forever um yeah we we start into our typical final destination mechanics they were supposed to die they didn't this force of death is going to hunt them down one by one now, because the Final Destinations franchise doesn't have a main villain other than the concept of death itself, yeah. um, the only difference is we all know that we're going to die. These characters know that death actually has it in for them. Death's actually seeking them out actively. Um, and there seems to be an order to things and there seems to be rules. But because they don't have like a face to put on it, um, it's sort of res a little bit over-dependent on its rules. And I think where this movie kind of falls a little bit is that the rules get muddy for me. I don't understand why certain things happen to certain characters when they do, and that still makes sense with the mechanics of the of you know the story or the the mythology, if you will, of the Final Destination franchise. But that said, if I'm going to answer the question, does it work with these sort of contrived, you know? Uh, Rube Goldberg-like sequences where people die elaborate deaths, does it pay off in that way? Yeah. Well, yes, absolutely, of course. There's a lot of threads to pull here, 
but what are you looking for when you're watching a Final Destination movie? Okay, I think for yeah. the most part, this movie does deliver on that. It's not my favorite in the franchise, but it is not my least favorite in the franchise. So it's kind of right down the middle for me. That's where I'm starting on Final Destination 3. Yeah, there's, kind of, there's definitely a formula to these films. I mean, a lot of these there are, but very much so to the Final Destination films, and they follow it to a T, right? Somebody has a premonition of some bad disaster happening where everybody dies. They all get off, and then they all die anyways yeah and uh and it's just you know as he said first first one there's a plane crash they avoid second one was the highway accident now we're doing roller coasters um and you know goes on and on but uh, i as far as roller coasters i feel like all horror fans should like roller coasters because the roller coaster is kind of like a horror film you have those like thrilling moments where you but you know you're locked in a seat you know you know you're safe right so <laughs> that's kind of how i look at horror movies but anyways um yeah, and I guess the point of these films, you're right. You kind of it's you want to see create creative uh, ways of people dying, and it's all sort of circumstances or coincidence. This happens, and then this happens, and it all leads up to you know a great death at the end, and uh, and it definitely does deliver with those. Yeah. Um, a couple that jump to mind are the tanning bed sequence, of course, kind of a, a great death, and also one where uh, a character gets a nail gun shot at the back of the head and the whole time that's how it finishes but you're wondering okay how is this death going to happen because you know it's coming but you're wondering how is it going to happen because everything <laughs> you know one thing leads to another and, and another and eventually it's the, the death scene but yeah well the creative team behind the first movie glenn morgan and james wong returned for the third they didn't do the second one um and yeah i i, I that's sort of one of the reasons why i had the issue with the jumping of the line in the scene you were talking about with the nail gun uh next in line was this canadian actor chris lemke sort of the like biggest asshole of the group of not super likable characters for the most part um but mary elizabeth winstead saves him and so the next in line was his girlfriend who instantly gets it <laughs> like yeah. uh there was no like death finding another way like she was right place right time right there and she gets the nail gun in her face so to my understanding the rest of the group would have to either die or escape death before chris lemke's character should be killed yeah fair enough i guess they i never really noticed but yeah i guess the rules so, to me, either Mary Elizabeth Winstead should have been killed before him, or she should have narrowly averted being killed. And I don't know. I don't know if that happened, or if it did, I missed it. Like, uh, I maybe I phased out, but like I, I watched all six of these movies. I wouldn't make you watch them alone, brother. <laughs> and I was confused by that moment. Yeah, I, I can't recall. I mean. I guess I just didn't put a lot of thought into it. I just uh, sort of let it happen. Well, and I think maybe that's what they're counting on. They're counting on you just being here for the fun, sort of like, how are they going to get it kills? (laughs) Um, The tanning bed sequence is uh, funny. Like, it's it's got the gratuity aspect to it. Uh, Another couple of Canadian actresses... uh, giving it their all for just this brutally extended and drawn out, terrible, burning to death scene. And I say all of that with a big, stupid grin on my face. Like, 
this would be a terrible, terrible, terrible fate, but there's something kind of comedic about it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because right before it happens, they, they got uh, headphones on and they're singing Roller Coaster. Yep. Um, you know, just happily at, at the top of their lungs as they're chanting, you know, nothing bad's going to happen today. <laughs> and what a thing to be singing after witnessing such exactly. a traumatic <laughs> Yeah, they're terrible. Same thing with the the athletic guy who gets the the weights pop his head. His oh, character, right. his character is just impossible. Like, I get that assholes exist in the world, but does this asshole really exist in the world? <laughs> yeah, and that's something else I point out is a lot of these deaths are quite gory. Yeah, and uh, I, and I, I guess that's something that goes along with the whole franchise. Really, that I sometimes forget because going in. To these films, I almost feel like uh, I guess surprised that I forget that they're gory yeah. because it doesn't seem like they should be. I guess when they start a teams, just like a I don't know, just a teen slasher movie without a slasher in it, I guess. But uh, yeah, a lot of these deaths become just over the top the explosions of heads and and bodies. And there's if you like that stuff, it's there definitely. Yeah. And I think the interesting part of the series, and again, Final Destination is not one of my favorites, but I mean, they're, they're fun for what they are, is how they try to make typical environments dangerous places. And the, this is a trend that goes on through the series. Like, there's a scene that takes place in this where they're in a drive through waiting for their fast food or whatever. And they create chaos for them there. In future episodes, there'll be scenes at a hairdresser salon or at an optometrist office. And, like, they just take normal environments and give them, like, the worst-case scenario bend, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, the drive-through sequence is pretty good. That one, that one got me. So... Whoa! <laughs> yeah, and th- I, that was a fun one because the, the target was a character that we didn't know was in the scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that again, well played, and it, the movie does have moments. Like I don't want to be overly hard on it. I, I I feel like this one falls into one of my infamous "is what it is" categories, much like the whole Final Destination series. What do you want? Well, you're gonna get that. I think one of the flaws of the series is that the more you get into the pattern of it, the more you just sort of learn not to get attached to any of these characters. Like that's that's right. Because it's they escaped the disaster at the beginning, but they may as well have stayed there because they're not going to be any, any better off in the end, right? And we find out as the series goes on, it just doesn't matter. The loop continues and continues. So you either die or you spend your life in constant peril, which is as bad or worse, you know. Uh and there's an inevitability to it. So when they go jump to this sequence, you know, however many months later, where all of a sudden all our characters start to bump into each other on a subway train, are yeah. we really supposed to be at all surprised by this? Like, is this a big gotcha ending? <laughs> like, like, let's be real. Don't get me wrong. It's well executed. And again, we get some fun gore out of it. Um, but it, th- there's something inevitable about the movies. Like, it's weird... The gotcha moments are the kills themselves. It's weird that they yeah. go for a third act twist because we know what we're watching, you guys. Yeah, fair. And maybe one thing that's a plus, if you like to see people die in these movies, every character usually dies twice. Yeah, that's right. They die, they die in the vision, usually spectacularly, and they will die again in an even bigger way. So uh, if you like watching that, then it's, it's there. 
Yeah. And then the whole photograph angle I wanted to mention too. Oh, yeah, that's that. I guess that was the one that's the one thing that maybe was unique to this chapter. Well, it was unique to Final Destination, but it was copy and pasted out of the Omen. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I didn't really get why she would have a magic camera that, yeah. uh, that would kind of have hints towards how people would die. It was a new a new thing, but uh, it was another clumsy exit of the screenplay. Like, So there was somebody else that was going to be on the roller coaster, and of course it was going to be somebody that we knew. And of course there was that scene at the beginning of the movie where the friendship bracelet is brought attention to. Like, yeah. it's it's... <laughs> yeah, it's not a complicated piece, but it's it's another slice of, you know, Canadian-made horror. And uh, if you're a fan of the franchise, I say go too. I don't have a lot more to say, to be honest. No, and, and I agree. The camera aspect was probably my least favorite part of the film. And unfortunately, it's a big part of it. But, yeah. Uh, and that's about the end for me too. Yeah. Mary Elizabeth Winstead went on to great things, of course. She did The Thing remake and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and she's in Death Proof. Uh, the genre has been good to her, uh, and yeah. everybody starts somewhere, and she's she's good in the movie. So, uh, yeah. yeah, and I like that. Yeah, you're right. It's been good to her, and she uh, returns to it now and then, too, so that's nice. Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. You said that you haven't listened to the Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective yet, so I'm going to sort of slightly repeat myself, at least in the introduction, before we, we go on this big gush fest. But I love this movie. I would argue it's one of the greatest single standalone sequel in in horror, you know. But like, I think it's one of the best single sequels out there. Not only does it expand the mythology, not only does it give us a terrifying origin story for Freddy Krueger, but it actually gives, it, it repairs the one flaw that existed for me in Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, which was the ending. Yeah. Nightmare on Elm yeah, Street 3 is the ending that Nightmare on Elm Street didn't have. And Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and 3 together, if you watch those two as a double feature, is just an epic fantasy horror feast and uh yeah, i can't it. endorse it enough <laughs> yeah it's, it's a good way to put it you don't even need part two really no um, part three brings it full circle and and really well um i agree 100 percent with that it's got a great cast um a really good creative team working on it frank darabont was involved with the screenplay uh, this director would go on to give us the Blob remake, which I just love. Um, it's a special effects extravaganza, like the 
Freddy Krueger had become popular enough and uh, New Line had been well enough established that they could throw a little bit more money and give this movie a little bit more scale. And even sort of the rough edges about the movie that people would argue make it aged poorly, like the Freddy skeleton and stop motion. I just... That's maybe the only only moment, if anything. But I love it. I love it. I love it so much. I love it. So and I kind of wrote that down too. As uh, the effects are great, the only thing, if there is going to be a question, is is the skeleton at the end. But um, I don't, there's something about stop motion that just kind of has a charm to it as well. So uh, I have no issue with that either. Yeah, Patricia Arquette stars. It's her first movie. She was very nervous apparently going into it. Um, and we are introduced to what we are told are the quote last of the Elm Street Elm children. Street they are at a institution who are treating them for their sleep issues and depression and other ish, other things. And, of course, they believe they're being stalked by a dream demon and the powers that be think they're troubled youth. Um, unlike most slasher movies, the characters here are almost uniformly likable. And um, we the deaths count, but they still have the fun Freddy Krueger over the topness to them. There is explicit violence throughout the movie. There's like fun zingers. There's a sexy nurse. It's just doing everything it can to try and keep you entertained, and it does. So the cat's out of the bag. Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, was the the threequel to beat this episode. And spoilers, Scott, I don't think any of the movies we've discussed before this come close. This is, for me, the top of the list. But talk me down if you dare. Oh, hell no. This, this is so on top of the list. It's, uh, as you said, the, the effects are great. There's um, the giant worm Freddy that swallows Kristen. Yep. Uh, that is so awesome. I just get so excited when that scene comes <laughs> on because it's, it's just so great. That's what you want in a Nightmare on Elm Street. We can do anything. Let's do that. Let's make Freddy a giant salad <laughs> that can come out of the wall and, and eat you. Um, Apparently uh, they had the to first, they had to repaint so, that. Apparently it looked a little bit too much like a penis when they first brought it to set. <laughs> I heard that too. And so they had to change the color of it a, a bit and put some some green goop on it or something. Yeah. Uh, there's the first very first dream of the movie. There's a little girl on a tricycle and and it's creepy and she's down in the boiler room and she says this is where he takes us. But, I mean that stuff it did sets Freddy as scary right there. Um, Jason is great, but he kills pot-smoking, fornicating teenagers. Yep. Freddy kills children. Yep. And that's, that's a whole other level of evil right there. And this that moment just rem- reminds you that he kills kids, innocent children, on a, the right tricycle. So um, This I, whole I dream right demon thing, really, this whole dream demon killing teenagers thing, it's secondary to what he really wanted to do. His best life for him would be in the real world hunting children. Right? Freddy's a yep. bad fucking dude. And then you sort of hinted at uh, the, the zingers, but this is maybe the title or the chapter where Freddy gets a little bit jokey. Yeah. You know, he starts his, his one-liners as kind of a, a punctuation to the kill. Um, and now it's not done to the excesses it would be later in the series, but it's kind of the start. Yeah. It's sort of a nice balance here between scary and also funny in a way where he's using a joke while he's killing you, which is not really funny. It's kind of almost shocking you know obviously the big one is welcome to prime time bitch. yeah 
the it, highlight that everyone ended up quoting afterwards. And, uh, to me, it was giving the audience permission to have a fun with this. I mean, we are dealing with really dark subjects, right? Child murder, teenage suicide, you know, like uh, really on its face, this like if you take it bluntly seriously, it, it, it would become oppressive. We're allowed to have fun in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, and I appreciate that. But you're right, fundamentally it's horrifying. I also think it's interesting how much of Freddy's iconography actually comes from this movie. Like, even people who are only passively aware of Freddy Krueger get that bastard son of a thousand maniacs yeah. thing. That's chapter that, three. <laughs> yeah, we get that from, see that weird scene with the nun that somehow seems to know how to get rid of Freddy and also knows his whole back, backstory. And, and then it's a chilling tale, and we don't know how this nun knows so much. And it turns out later we find this is the ghost of Freddy's mother, we believe, right? Yep. And that's kind of... Uh, you're right. It's it's a backstory, and it's a, it's kind of a good, weird, scary backstory. It's and, a great uh, B plot, and a lot of times the B plot would be like some boring asshole administrator at the hospital who's trying to shut down the program or something like this. This pays off narratively in giving us more information about Freddy, and they go for a little ghosty twist with it in the third act. Cause why not? And it's funny. Before I got to watch this film for for this review. The first thing that I think about when I think of this movie is that theme song by Dawkins, The Dream uh, Warriors. And yeah. we talked about that before, right? But that, back in 1987, that was my style of music. And the day I knew this was going to be on my TV, the whole day I had that song just stuck in my head in anticipation. So, and maybe for the next day after. And yeah, and it probably, you're right, it probably ended up being their biggest song. They play another song by theirs during the movie as well, Into the Fire, another good tune. But, uh, um, yeah, this was just a huge film. And the big thing that uh, Dream Warriors added to the whole franchise was uh, the idea of the Dream Warriors. I mean, Freddy can do anything in the dream world, but they stop saying, this is our dream. Why can't we? Maybe yep. we can have extra powers in the dream world as well. If he can control the dream, maybe we can do something. Empowering so the victims. Empowering <laughs> them. And they've been on the ropes against Freddy for all this time that they get super excited by their dream powers. And in a lot of ways, that's their undoing. Uh, I loved it as a kid, that wizard kid who was in the wheelchair. Yeah. Like, he literally levels up and all of a sudden is shooting lightning and, like, so excited by his power that he foolishly rushes in at Freddy instead of keeping this thing at a distance. And it costs him the whole game, right? Yeah, and then you said that the deaths carried some weight. Yep. Um, you know, like I said, a nice kid in a wheelchair. Um, and, now, and now he's dead. I always Matches. felt bad about Jennifer Rubin, the drug addict. Yeah. It's a great yeah. death sequence, but it kind of hurts because we like that character and she's being brought down by the thing that she most wanted to defeat in herself. That's right. Yeah, so everyone thinks they have powers, but I guess yeah, whatever Freddy can do is uh, kind of trumps all of it. and almost It's almost like he's playing along with letting them think their dream powers are working. And, well, and then in the end, he just... No, I'm going to I'm gonna do this. They were forced into the confrontation too early, I, is the way I always thought about it. Like, if they had time to hone their skills and, like, you know, work out in the dream environment and understand how to do it, Freddy just lives there. He knows the score, right? These guys are just yeah. feeling it out for the first and second time when they have to, Joey gets kidnapped and they have to go in and, uh, and, and rescue him. And they're forced into the confrontation before they're ready. 
but I love how much the characters leveled up. And that's one of the things that bothered me going forward in the Nightmare on Elm Street series, that very few of the characters were given that again. Uh, I like the idea that in your dreams, if you know what you're doing, you're as powerful as Freddy. As long as you don't know that, he has the advantage. And one thing we didn't mention in this is the return of the characters from part one. Nancy. Uh, when we, we have Nancy, and this is, you know, she's our hero from part one, and we also have Nancy's dad, too, um, which is a big, nice thing to see him again. Yep. Um, and and they showed, uh, I mean, you talked about Ripley dying at the end of Alien 3. Well, they 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 do off with Nancy in this one. Um, but I think the way that this happens is they, she, they do this with respect. Uh, they showed balls killing it off, but I, it also carried something. So it, it had a lot of weight. It had meaning. You understood why it happened. It was a shocking moment when it happened. Um, and, like, it, yeah, it was everything that what we talked about with Alien 3 that Ripley's death wasn't for me. Right. You know, another one like Jamie Lee Curtis in, in uh, Resurrection. Resurrection. Boo. As well, you know, it's like that, that carries no weight. That didn't mean anything. You know, this is how you do it if you're going to do it. And and what it does also, it shows as a trilogy, it tells that full story. This could have ended and it would have been perfect as you're just watching one and three. Um, but if you're going to continue it on, it's Freddy's show from here on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I do believe, and I stand by that statement, that one and three together, like... That's as good as horror movies and fantasy movies have gotten for me. <laughs> like, uh, like, there's just so much, so much imagination here. There's so much energy here. The special effects, the kills, that fucking puppet kill, Scott. <laughs> oh yeah, when he pulls the marionette. Yeah. Yeah, that. That's always been a little special one. That even like that was traumatizing the first time I saw it. This kid's veins being used as puppet strings. And just the grotesque effects, especially on his feet, uh, like it, it, it stayed with me. <laughs> <laughs> and then they end up uh, destroying Freddy for good this time. Yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing can possibly bring him back, except <laughs> what a dog that pisses on his bones is oh. that. <laughs> the yeah. The next back. movie just takes a hot, <laughs> wet shit all over everything that we've seen, right? <clears throat> But, I mean, this movie by itself, just wall-to-wall works. Like, there's no, there's no pacing issues. There's no point where the movie, like, sags for me at all. And like you say, there's, there's shocking little bursts of humor. Zsa Zsa Gabor gets killed <laughs> in this movie. Um, They're the going sort of back to sequences that we've seen earlier in the movie. Um, Patricia Arquette has been building these Freddy Krueger dollhouses to keep awake. And uh, she keeps on revisiting this exchange with her mother that she has, her mother telling her to go to bed. And the way Freddy kind of intrudes upon this when we come back to revisit it is, you know. I love that. Yeah. It, it sort of plays with uh, how our, our dreams can sometimes be repetitive and, and, and play with time. And Yeah, I kind of love this film from the moment you press play. Um, <laughs> It starts with that caption from Edgar Allan Poe that always, I, I feel like I've always remembered this, that says, sleep, those little slices of death, how I loathe them. Yep. And then it starts off perfectly and then just goes from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're doing short shrift, but like, like it's, I just love it. I don't know what else to say. 
<laughs> you're kind of center right. It's a good, perfect combination of horror and fantasy as well, and yeah. uh, makes a delicious sandwich. Yeah, uh, you're right. That it's cool that John Saxon came back, and once again, he was also martyred for the cause. Um, I feel like uh, it's a bittersweet end for both of them because neither of them die knowing that Freddy has been defeated. <laughs> you know, yeah, it really sucks. It really sucks. But um, but it also feels right for the story. It absolutely does. It is a ballsy, good move. And, you know, thank you for that. Scott, thank you so much, brother, for coming back to the show and talking threequels with me. Um, <clears throat> I think we're going to agree on number one. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that that's easy. And for me, uh, the bottom was pretty easy. But I'm kind of middle of the road for, for the middle. Like, on a different day, it could go a different way. So I'm not sure if we're going to match, but I don't feel like I, there's going to be anything too passionate. Unless you put Elm Street 3 in last place i don't see you and i having a fight here so uh let's hear it what was your least favorite of these six threequels and why okay i guess here we go yeah and i got a feeling we're gonna not match and i kind of think i know where it might be different but uh, at any rate i'm gonna put tremors three at the bottom okay and and first of all i, I want to say it's it's fine I, I feel like maybe I was being a little bit too hard on it and sometimes i feel when i speak to you uh, maybe i'm harder on things than you know, I maybe would love a film, but when I talk to you about it, maybe I'm not going to praise it as much. And that's simply because, you know, it's, it's almost a contest. They're ranking against each other. But Tremors 3 just didn't really grab me. And uh, not just because the effects weren't great. It, that was part of it. But uh, at any rate, it just, it's sort of one of those films just feels like it was just on. Right. Uh, and but uh, I mean uh, I did want to point out there was that great line about when they were naming the creatures and the girl says how about ass blasters and the guy says hmm, that sounds like the name of a porno film <laughs> so it does get a point for that <laughs> number five I feel like maybe this might be somewhat controversial to have as a number five just because the Alien franchise is loved by a lot of people it's right. loved by horror fans sci-fi fans people who love thrilling movies period uh, it's action fans everybody um but Alien 5 is, is probably the fifth best in, in this pile for me. Yeah. It has some good and great moments, and it has potential, but as a third movie, it doesn't have the full entertainment value as the others, and certain decisions that are made in this film sort of hurt it in the end. Yeah. And, uh, and for me, the most points, as I said before, we lost in the downgrading effects in the big final corridor chase scene. And you can't... I'm not sure what's happening, who it's happening to. Uh, the alien effects are are lacking and uh, maybe this might be just the transfer to shiny blu-ray that points out some of the flaws right but uh, but it has enough knocks against it uh, to put it in fifth place fair enough brother right below number four is final destination C. Uh, and more than anything this film finds itself in the fourth spot just because it 
finds itself in the fourth spot. <laughs> it's sort of, as you said, it is what it is. It's, it seems just to fit in number four really comfortably. Um, it's fine. The reason for seeing these movies is to see people dying in creative ways, and it does it deliver that? Yes, it does. It doesn't really add anything else that uh, number one or two didn't already do. Um, just people dying in different ways. Yep. But it's, it's entertaining enough, and I can't really point out any super big flaws in it. As an entry in its franchise, I think it's it's playing by the rules, for the most part. For the most part, yeah. I, it doesn't have that full trilogy sort of appeal to it, but yeah. um, it's just another chapter. Yeah. Now, the tough spot here was two and three for me. Um, in the end, Return of the Living Dead 3, it gets its points because it's it's way better than you would probably expect it to be. Right. And it does not have a huge budget, but they, I feel like they used it where it really counts. And usually when I do movies with you, with you there's one movie that stands out as the party movie. Right. And, you know, whether it's, um, you know, Wormwood or This is the End, the party movie usually ends up fairly high. On the list. <laughs> uh, this... This one I'm, I'm going to give number three spot to. Uh, I kind of wanted to give it number two because it's, it's the party movie of the bunch, and uh, it's got a lot of positives going towards it that you maybe wouldn't expect it would have. Yeah. Um, and Friday the 13th Part 3 is kind of more by the numbers, but... Uh, it's got some sentimental value for you, especially. Yeah, I yeah, find I, movies that traumatize me when I'm young, I, I, I have a hard time, you know, not loving still to this day. And, and I'm going to put Friday the 13th Part 3 at number two because uh, even without seeing it in 3D this, this time, I kind of, I know the 3D is there. I know what scenes are supposed to pop out. Yeah. Uh, and I do still enjoy it, aside from the wrinkles that I may have been blind to before. Uh, and I, it's kind of a hard selection as well. But also because at Part 3, this series was just picking up steam. Yeah. Whereas part, part 3 for Return of the Living Dead, it sort of was the end. They had two more, but nobody... Uh, I don't count them as canonical. I hate those movies so much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's not really much to them, but uh, Friday the 13th Part 3 was huge at that time, and uh, they and it just kept going. So, you know, it started Jason off with this iconic hockey mask, which when you just see it being carried around by someone other than Jason before it's his, it's sort of weird to see it now because you just identify that with Jason. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that, get, that gets number two for me just because... Uh, of what it meant to the series as part of it too and uh, of course Nightmare on Elm Street uh, The Dream Warriors is just so good as a third entry and possibly the best of the whole series um, it's it's solid and uh, it perfectly tells the story It and uh, it makes it go full circle it doesn't repeat itself from you know just like Final Destination it's just not another Nightmare on Elm Street movie it's different enough they add stuff to it and it all ties together. It follows the rules of the first one, and it's easily number one. Yeah. Well, I think we knew that going in. We knew that going in. And Scott, we definitely agreed on number one. And someday I believe that you're going to go six to six with me and become a rank and review champion. But it was not this day. <laughs> I warned thee. I warned thee. Um, and I, I think you got... My five and six reversed, and, and two and three reversed. That's my guess. Well, you're you're very right about that. But I'm going to do the rank anyway. <laughs> no. For me, I'm talking about as far as my disappointment as a fan. Alien Three has to be at the bottom for me. 
It is inarguably the best made and best produced and probably the best acted of all of these movies. Like, it's just a better made, like, amazingly produced movie. But as a fan, I felt slapped in the face by the beginning of the movie, but I stuck it out only to be slapped in the face again at the end of the movie, you know? Um, I can admire a lot of stuff about the movie as a cineast, as a fan of movies and appreciating of like what it takes to make such a visually spectacular science fiction movie. I can appreciate it on that level. But as a fan of the Alien franchise, no, no, no. This has to be at the bottom for me. With a heavy heart, I will put Tremors 3 back to perfection in fifth place. It is very direct-to-video, isn't it? Like, yep. you can feel the, the, the downgrade from, like, the cinematic release of Tremors to, the, like, this feels cheaply executed. I think Once Upon a Time I was much more hostile to the movie than it deserves. It really is just a fine, fun, silly B-monster movie. It's just not what I wanted for the Tremors franchise, but that doesn't necessarily make it awful. <laughs> Uh, like I, I, I'm softening on the, actually the sequels generally. Like I, I love what they want to be, and they kind of remind me like these would be the cheapo monster movies from like the '60s that the special effects weren't that great even then. But everybody went to the yeah. cinema and pointed and howled, and that's what they're going for. And I just can't hate them for that, you know. For sure. Fourth place, we agree. Final Destination Three. There are peaks, there are valleys, but it is another Final Destination movie. And that's kind of the beginning. It's the fourth place kind of movie, isn't it? Right? It's right. It's <laughs> it's just definitely everything you would expect it to be. <laughs> like, so, uh, yes, in third position, Friday the 13th in 3D. I, you know, I brought up the pacing issues. And like, I, I was picking on it a lot while I did the review, but... My affection for the entire Friday the 13th franchise and my enjoyment of Jason Voorhees and just the aesthetics actually takes this movie a, a long way. But I've got this sort of thing for like low-budget, scrappy, edgy movies. And, and Brian yeah. Usna always does put a smile on my face. And there's just something about Return of the Living Dead 3. They really... They were taking it in a different direction. They were trying stuff. Not everything worked, but I just, I love the enthusiasm. I love the gore. And I love that in spite of how stupid and kind of trashy it was, it had a heart to it. Like, both the people making it and the story they were telling, there was heart here. And that that gave it second place for me. I I have fun with it. I recognize yeah. that it's it's goofy, but I have a lot of fun. With Return of the Living Dead 3. And I was just embarrassing when I was gushing over Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Warriors. I have always loved Dream Warriors. Even when I was terrified by Dream Warriors as a young young kid, I loved it. It was like yeah. everything I wanted out of my horror movies. It's just top tier as far as I'm concerned. So, yes, at number one, Dream Warriors for sure. Fair enough. Thank you so much, Scott, for doing another episode of Rank and Review. Um, start thinking about and working on your guilty pleasure horror list because uh, I'm starting to get excited by this project that we're, we're undertaking. 
That shall be fun. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to say to the people on the internet before we sign off for the day? Yes. Hi, people on the internet. That's it. That's it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Be well. And uh, watch some good movies. Watch some bad ones, too. Bad movies are the price we pay for good movies, Scott. <laughs> oh, man, I love a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs>